Today's scripture comes from Matthew 28, verses 16 to 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of God. This is it. We've been in this um, incredible text. It's a famous text, deservedly famous. And these are, I don't know if you realize, these are history-changing words. These are probably, quite literally, some of the most important words ever said in all of history. This is uh, the command of, of the risen Savior. He has conquered sin and death at this point, and this is what his charge to his followers, um, to his disciples. And a disciple is simply one who follows Jesus. So if you consider yourself one who believes in the gospel and you believe in Jesus, then you are one of his followers. And this is a charge to you. It's a charge to the whole of God's family, the church. And um, our church is all about this thing that has famously been called the Great Commission. This um, unbelievable call to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, this is what our church is, it's, this is always going to be in our church. If we're not talking about the Great Commission on any given Sunday, it's there, okay? Everything we do in our church is about this. It's about being his follower. It's about being his follower and inviting other people to be his followers. It's about um, proclaiming his name to all the nations. And as we've been saying for weeks, uh, then you don't have to go to a nation, then they come here. And we're in this really special place, this really special city where we get to do this really incredible piece of, of, of obedience here of the Great Commission um, right here in the city as a new church. Now, what I want to do before we go to our launch service and then we start to draw our neighbors and our city into our orbit, um, one last message on this passage. I really want to focus on the latter portion, verse 20, where Jesus... so. Last week, I talked about this uh, strange portion. It says that they worshiped, but some doubted. But I, today, I want to talk about the, the latter portion, um, which often doesn't get a lot of attention, and, um, which is this, verse 20. This is what Jesus says, Teach them, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Teaching them to observe all that I've, I have commanded you, and behold, I will always be with you to the end of the age. That's what I want to talk about today. And really what it is, is we're talking about this issue of obedience. Um, that's what I want to talk about today. And so, you know, you, you guys know I've, this has been a rather intense week for me. And so I, I actually wrote down a lot. So if I look down and I'm kind of reading my text, I'm a little more than usual. It's because I just didn't know if I'd have clarity of mind today. So let, let, let me, let me, let me, um, let me say this the way I planned it. As a church, we take the Great Commission very, very seriously. It is the final and great command of the risen 
Lord, the one who conquered sin and death on our behalf and now has all authority on heaven and earth. It's been given to him. Not the president, not the richest person in the world, Jesus. I know a lot of people don't believe that, but we do. Right? If you consider our followers, we do. As we launch our church, we are asking you to obey and engage this outrageous command from Jesus. The Great Commission is in one sense an impossible and crazy calling. It will call upon us to do strange, hard, demanding, and sacrificial things, and yet it is also an invitation. The Great Commission is a bidding. It bids us to make and transform your life to be part of a wondrous and grand drama in which he, that is Jesus, has already won the victory and invites you to share in, its, in this drama's eternal glories. That's all there. It's there in these words. So today I want us to face this issue of obedience and faith. What will your life be about? Will you trust in yourself and live within the confines of the drama of your little life? And I'm, here's what I'm going to call it. It's the prison of your little life and the small g little glories that are so important that you think are going to make the prison of your life good. Will your life be about yourself and what you think is so important for you? Or will you trust and seek obedience to one inviting you to something far bigger? That's the invitation from Jesus. That's the invitation of the church. So many people today think the church is some irrelevant building where people do some kind of ancient little pieties and all the important things are happening. It's about our career. It's about what happens out in the sports field. It happens in the grades, in, in, in the midterms, in the classes. It happens in how well your SAT score is, your MCAT score, or whatever it is that you think these are the goods that we're going to attain and then, you know, and, then, and then my life will be beautiful. But this is actually, it's a trap. It's a prison. The confines of a life like this can only have a drama that's about this big. And a narrative of the story of your life can only be about this big. And if your wisdom and all that you trust and seek after happens inside this drama, it's too small. You are an eternal being. You and I are made in the image of God. You are made for eternal and big and great and glorious things. Not for small little things like, will I get into law school and meet the so-called love of my life? <laughs> and then will we live in a perfect house in the right side of town and my kids will then be able to go to really good, good schools and then they could get great SAT scores, et cetera, et cetera, right? Or in my case, you know, I wanted my son to hit a baseball and play for the Oakland A's, <laughs> you know? That's a, that's a small drama. The one who has the authority of under all heaven and earth, he invites you to a much bigger drama. That your life could be about much bigger things. That's what we're talking about today. And I want to ask you to, I want to invite you that will you trust in this Crazy person. <laughs> this seemingly completely nut, nutty person that's God, okay? 
And he says, go and make disciples of all the nations. That means when you go to school tomorrow and your friend is from India and she is a Hindu, it's on. <laughs> this drama is on. You get it? When you go to work tomorrow and the person in the cubicle next, you know, right there is from Japan and he's a Buddhist, this drama is on. It's on. <laughs> we want these words, this great and crazy command to be in your mind. And instead of the constant fixation, what am I going to, what am I going to watch on fic, uh, Netflix tonight? <laughs> you know, where, where I, wait, okay, I got to like coordinate with my wife, got to get my kid to soccer practice because you know my daughter is going to, you know, play in the World Cup, right? <laughs> Not that those aren't good dreams, but God has dreams, his big dreams, huge dreams. And he is a father to his children. And all good fathers share their best dreams to the children. And guess what? God the Father has shared his great dreams to his children. And then he put it right in the middle of his church and it's spoken from his son. That's what this was about. So three parts. Part one, the cost of disobedience and distrust. There's a cost. We often think we're under grace Jesus says, do this. And then, I don't know, it's too much. It's too big. I don't know if I can do that. Of course it's too big. It's from God. And we're going to find out, just like I said to you last week, we're not going to be able to do it. Things from God tend to be God-sized things, which means they're impossible. The truly great men and women of God, they find out. I mean, Hudson Taylor, one of my favorite, favorite Christians, that, that's why I named my son Hudson. He said, things from God are First impossible, then they're really hard, and then they're accomplished. <laughs> that's, what, that's the way he put it. First they're impossible, then they're really hard, then, they're, then it's done. And we trust them. But if you don't trust them and you don't choose, then you never get to see that great thing that God does. You won't be a part of it. <laughs> that's part of the cost. And it's not small. Part two, worthy of your trust and obedience into his great drama. Jesus is worthy of your trust and obedience into his great drama. And I want to close by saying the eternal glory that you and I can share. You and I get to share. So let me start by, um, let me talk about this. Um, the Christian life is by grace. You know, nobody can earn their way in, into God's family, into heaven. Nobody can earn this. Um, it's all by grace. And the things he gives and offers, they're, they're, they're gifts that are so big, how can anybody possibly ever earn them? But God is a strange God. This king is a strange king. There are gifts, but then, you know how you get the gift? Some of the gifts are not like just waiting when you get to heaven. The gifts start here today. And the gifts come through a series of trusts. This, the gifts from, it's like, we're not even ready to receive these gifts. We're not even ready to receive these riches. But he then says, do this. And then you're like, oh, that's not easy. <laughs> and then follow me here. Follow me. It's follow. 
The Christian life is follow. It's discipleship. It's being a son. It's being a daughter. Trust, obey, follow, be a disciple. And, you know, in America, in 21st century America, this calling, um, so I, I tend to look at the gospel as having kind of like two parts, kind of like two bookends to it. One aspect of it is you and I can't do it. You're going to fail, fail, fail. Your righteousness isn't good enough. Your performance isn't good enough. Your goodness is not even good enough. Your goodness is like bad. <laughs> your goodness itself is so filled with sin, it's unholy. So salvation, 100% by grace. We love that message. <laughs> we love that message. And you know what? That's, that's not like one part of the gospel. It's all of the gospel. But on the flip side of the same reality, not, it's not a separate thing. It's not like two separate messages, like, like somehow God is a schizophrenic and then trying to like, you know, like, trying to like pull, uh, you know, some kind, of, some kind of trick on us. It's like a bait and switch, all grace. And then somehow, you know what the other side is? All obedience. You know what the father, you're invited into a relationship to a king. And you know what that king wants? 100% obedience. Here's the words. Teaching them to observe some of the most important things that I commanded you. That's what it says, right? No, that's not what it says. Teaching them to observe all, <laughs> all of it, everything that I have taught. Teach them to follow all of it. That's the king's words. He's the son of the father. I, I've, I've yet to meet the father who's got children and says, you know, only those few things that I taught you, you obey. All that other stuff, don't bother with it. <laughs> I don't know a father who thinks like that. As a father, I don't think like that. Every father, okay, I'm not talking about like wicked fathers here, okay? Who's got like bad plans for their children. But sometimes you know, even our good plans are bad plans, okay? I get it. But generally, every father's got good intentions and you, you, you want your children to say, please do this, would you do this? And you just, there's usually good reasons. You know, they're not just tyrannical, right? But we're talking about God. This is a father, when he asks you th for things, when he tells you things, you know, we don't like following, we don't like obeying. <laughs> So all grace, salvation is all grace. Christianity is also all trust. See, it's not all just obedience. Just got to do it. Oh my gosh, just have to do it. It's not like a got to do it kind of thing. In Christianity, if you understand the real secret of the God who offers you salvation, all grace, 100% infinite love. I told you last week, grace is an infinitely big word, which comes from an infinitely big reality, and grace is the conduit of an infinite love. If that's the person calling you to do things, you know what he's, they're, he's calling you for? 100% trust. Not just do it because you have to do it. Do it because you get to do it. On the other side of obedience is something good with a capital G. So good you can't even believe that it's that good. That's 
faith. That's the drama of the Christian life. Faith is to believe and trust that the cause of God, good with a capital G, so big you can't even believe it. And that's where we stumble. In our head, I know it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. Then tomorrow we wake up and you're like, it don't feel good. <laughs> I don't want to do this. I've got other things I want to do. And we're not good at this. I don't know, something about, um, I don't know, we've never been good at this. Like America's never been good at this. Um, I'm in my late 40s now. But something in the last 10 to 20 years, there is a spirit. It's a spiritual thing. It's a spiritual thing. And it's in the hearts of like virtually every American I ever meet. And it's stronger in the younger generation. The younger generation is much more resistant to this idea that we're supposed to obey somebody, we're supposed to follow somebody. I mean, it's pretty much a, it's a totally like, it's, it's an incredibly rebellious culture. <laughs> huh? And um, we really believe that there's only one person you owe, and that's you. <laughs> we really believe this. I mean, like the younger generation believes, I don't know anybody. My dad, I don't know my coach. I don't know my mom. I don't know a oh, anybody. God, I can't. Yeah, theoretically, I'm supposed to owe him. And if you're a Christian, you know that that's a fact. But in the heart, you get this really, really powerful feeling. That feeling comes from someplace. And let me tell you, it's not a good place. That feeling this spirit, it comes from hell. <laughs> it comes from death. I don't know anybody. The only person I owe is me. <laughs> Let me tell you, that's a prison. That's a prison. You're in your life, the drama of your life. I'm going to build my identity. I'm going to build my identity on whatever it is. This career, this achievement, perfect love, sexuality, <laughs> race. You know, I'm gonna build my, I'm gonna build this thing. And then when all this is fulfilled, then my life will like be great. You're in a prison. You're in trouble, you're in huge trouble. Because when it fails, when, when it fails. Because it might succeed. <laughs> And then when it succeeds, you'll feel really, really great for a short time. And then you're going to find out that even when it succeeds, it stinks. So there's only two pathways. It succeeds, and you're in this prison with yourself. And then the thing that you thought was going to be so great, it's going to fill your whole heart up, it won't. And then you and yourself... We'll go, this, this is it, this is it. This is all that's in the prison of my life. And then on the other side, if it fails, you will hate yourself because you're the Lord of yourself. There's only one Lord. There's only one Savior. It's you. <laughs> Who do you answer to? You. You don't follow anybody else. You're not a disciple of anybody else. There's no Lord. There's no Savior. You didn't listen to your dad. You don't have to listen to your teacher, your coaches, your boss. They're all expendable. As soon as they are not convenient to listen to or obey or trust, you trust you. So you're the only Lord and Savior. What if you fail your Lord and Savior, you? That's a bad place. You want to know why there's a lot of depression and anger and hatred and darkness, opioid 
opioid thing. That it's because, because if you hate yourself, you better drug yourself because the only other option is to kill yourself. <laughs> it's really logical. Everybody just thinks, it's, it's crazy. Why is America on opioid? What do you mean? We're in the prison of ourself. Okay. I want to talk about cost. That's a big cost. I already just gave you one big cost. Um, I used to say it this way. Um, there, there are two tragedies in life. Not getting what you want. You know what the other tragedy is? Getting what you want. <laughs> Not getting what you want. And then getting what you want. And then that's it. There's no happy endings. If this is the life narrative that you're in, there's no happy ending. There's only tragedy. It's just, you just choose. Left this this way <laughs> or this way. Apart from following somebody else into a bigger life, a greater glory, a more beautiful life, these are the only two ways. Right? And you're going, well... Not for me. I, I will get what I want and then I will have a happy life. <laughs> okay, maybe. Maybe. There's a few people you'll get to live that way and then you'll probably die and if you don't know Jesus, then you'll get to enjoy it for about 50 years if you're lucky. <laughs> and then it's over. It's one cost. But for most people, two tragedies. Just choose. The third way is to follow. <laughs> That's the third way. It's the only other option. But let me tell you a second thing. Inside, while you are following yourself, you're choosing yourself. You're choosing, okay, I know what I want out of life. And as I get this, I'm not going to like follow this Jesus person. I'm going to let... I'm going to be the boss of my life. And every time what he wants out of my life conflicts with the big goals of my life, of, of what I want out of my life, I'm going to choose me and we'll sort of kind of manage Jesus back there somehow. Like he keeps coming back and wants, you know, you know a few other things, but like, like just we'll hold him at bay. <laughs> we'll hold him at bay and we'll do just enough Jesus to get through. And then a lot of you, you guys, you guys kind of was like, Jesus is... Um, is the fire extinguisher of your life. You guys know what I'm talking about? You run your life and then there's a big fire and Jesus is, in case of fire, break glass. And then you gotta pull out the fire extinguisher. That's Jesus. <laughs> Jesus, help me out here. Put out the fire. Put out the fire. My marriage is in big, big trouble. Put out the fire. Oh my goodness, I'm gonna get laid off and we're gonna lose our house. Miracle time. You're Jesus. Can you do some miracle thing here? Right? And, and, then, and then it's crazy. Sometimes, and then sometimes Jesus actually, he does it. He puts out the fire. <laughs> he actually puts out the fire. We don't deserve it, but he does. And then we're so happy for about a few, like a year or two. I'll follow you. We, we get like all intense about following him for like about six months. Some of you, you know, who are a little better, two years. And then we drift back to self-lordship. But if you go there, and then you choose the things that you think are so important, those things that are so important to you, they'll rot. 
and there'll be cost. So even inside of your life, there'll be cost. Okay, I'm getting all dramatic. <laughs> Let me give you an example, and I'll give you a painful example. And um, forgive me if I'm talking very um, personally. Um, all week long, I've been thinking about my father-in-law. I call him dad. Actually, I refer him to him as dad. I call him abonim, which is the respectful way of calling you know, your father, father. I call my, my dad abonim. And um, Young Moo Kim, that's his name, or his American name was Jimmy. <laughs> Jimmy. <laughs> There's male. I always go, oh, Jimmy. Jimmy Kim, that's dad. Um, Jimmy passed away this past week and we've been thinking so much about him and thinking about all that's good about him and mostly we're thinking about all that's good about him but you also, you know, your dad is not just one person in your life. I mean, this is like not my dad, dad, this is my father-in-law but this person casts a very, very powerful shadow in your life and even if you don't like him, <laughs> Even if you resent them, I mean, do you know that if your dad left your mom when you're like three years old and you never knew him, he's still there. <laughs> His absence is there. <laughs> Every birthday he wasn't at is like a wound. Every graduation, every basketball game he was not at He's like, he's like there, but he's not there. It's crazy. It's like that. That's how important your dad is. Mom too, but especially dad. So, you know, we, the, the siblings, we're there around the table and we're talking about, you know, my, my, my brother-in-law, he will, you know, since he's the oldest, he's, he's eight years older than, than my wife, Grace. So he has memories that Grace doesn't even remember because she was so little. And he will tell us things about dad that are incredible things, <laughs> incredible things. I heard about them, but to just hear them in detail from him who's, who got to watch it, you know, just eyewitness. I mean, give you an example. Um, so when he was about four or five years old, his dad uh, left Korea, moved to America, moved to the biggest, baddest city in the world, New York, during a really bad time in New York's history, early 70s. <laughs> I mean, there's, it's like crime. It's like a horrible time in New York, okay? And, um, and, and they moved to uh, Brooklyn. Brooklyn's like a hip place today. It was not a hip place back then. And they lived in Brooklyn and Queens because that's where the hard scrabble people lived. And what enabled him to come to the U.S. was because back then the, the garment industry is like taking off and he had tailoring talents. He, he was like a trained certified tailor in Korea. So that's what he came. He came to work in the garment factory, long hours. And he came with, I mean, you know, you hear these stories. Um, they came with $30. He probably came with like about $50 because it was illegal in Korea to take out more money than that. Back then, you cannot actually take out, you cannot actually leave the country with more money than that. So you literally are showing up. Every Korean showing up back then is dirt poor. <laughs> And um, for the first few weeks, he lived at the Y, couldn't speak English. 
got off a plane and somehow in his completely like no English, he has to say, how do I get to this factory and where can I sleep? That's young Mu Jimmy Kim, incredible man. This man is, he's got like, I don't mean to be mean, but like you, millennials, you guys don't know what this is like. <laughs> you millennials, you, you, you guys can't do this, right? My generation, X gen, we can't do this, okay? I mean, like, we're a bunch of wussies. I mean, like, hello, we ain't gonna ever do something like this. But this man could do this. He saved up his money, sending money back to his wife and son, and a year later, he sponsors them, and they, at the year, or maybe two years later, doesn't get to see his wife, to see his son, just dealing with loneliness, hunger, you know, like discovering that there's this thing called milk. <laughs> Literally, it's like there's this bottle of glass. It's white. He drank it. He liked it. No refrigerator. Didn't know you're supposed to refrigerate it. <laughs> After a few days, like, this doesn't taste right. <laughs> that's, a, that's a story that I heard for the first time a couple days ago. That's um, Jimmy Kim. Every day, he had his Bible. The man had huge chunks of the Bible memorized, came from a very, very serious Christian family. And um, he disappointed his grandfather. His grandfather said that he was like a perfect son, except he disobeyed his father and his grandfather by going to America. <laughs> that was the one thing. He's like, don't do this. But he did it. And he made a life. Jimmy Youngmoo Kim came from a family where I think he was, um, he had four siblings, two, three, four, who survived. Multiple um, infants died. This is a poor time. He came from the poor side of Korea. He came from a, a rural village called Yudong, which is in the south of the country at a time when the country's really poor, coming out of the Korean War. And um, you wonder why Koreans celebrate the 100th day after a baby's born or the first birthday, because many babies do not make it. So we're not talking about 100 years ago, babies don't make it. In Young Moo's lifetime, his family saw multiple babies not make it. And he had a little sibling, I think it was three or four years old, and he lost a little sibling who was three years old. So he's had like multiple siblings die. And um, this is the way he grew up. And, um, and this is a man who could put his nose to what he has to do. And his life was for his kids. And um, he could do it. I don't think he ever felt an ounce of self-pity or give up. This just was not in Young Moo Kim's. It's like, it's not, it's like not on the radar, okay? Give up. It's just not, it does not exist. You guys understand that? Like, we're, like I don't know if we know, understand that. I do not understand how you could live and give up doesn't exist. Feel sorry for yourself does not exist. That's the kind of man he is. So I admire this man. I mean, I'm a person that admires courage. This is a man of courage. 
I admire perseverance. This guy can hang through. But here's what I want to share. I want to share with you his weakness. I'm not telling you a hero's story. He's a man. He's a sinner. He's a believer. He's a son of the Father. But what, what Peter shared, it just really stuck out. He says, in his mind, in 1990 was like a turning point in their family's life. In 1990, so he started a dry cleaner. He, he went from the tailoring business <laughs> where he worked in the, the garment factory. Ultimately, he opened up a dry cleaner. The dry cleaner burned down in a horrible fire where they lost everything. I told you this man doesn't give up. And then he had to come back from that. Um, he built the dry cleaner again, and then the chemicals from the, the, the you know, they, we didn't have like these laws about, you don't use bad chemicals, are like, are eaten away at his health. So then he had saved up his money, put that away, and then he, you know, stepped away from business for a couple years while he recovered his health and then tried different things. He, he, he tried, he tried uh, being a baker. <laughs> what is the next business he's going to do? And then he started a women's clothing store and it ended up being in um, Brooklyn. They lived in the Bronx by this point, and then, and they were doing this. And in 1990, um, up until this point, they lived a life like faithful Christians. They wouldn't miss church any given week. They, um, the church is trying to reach people for Jesus. You know, mom and dad on Sundays, like Sundays, everything shuts down. Dad had a different cadence. They would work, but then. You know, Peter would talk about, like, dad would come home one day. They would, he and his dad would hop into a train. And, you know, this is when they lived down in Queens and then go to, like, some beach in Brooklyn. I didn't know there was beaches in Brooklyn. And then they would hunt crab and they would come back. That's the kind of, like, his father he was. But by this point in his life, when all of the, the, the pain and the curses of life were beaten down on him, he said, this door's just got to be open every day. <laughs> We do our best business on Sunday. And he and his wife started having big fights about closing the store on Sunday. And dad said, nope, this store is going to be open on Sunday. It will be open every day. And mom, for a time, refused to go to the store with him. And that was a really bad period of their, their marriage. Like he refused to talk to her. And she felt really guilty She'd go to church and serve. She'd take the train to church because they lived in the Bronx, but the church was down there in Queens. She'd take the train to church and she'd be there all day. And then, um, but then eventually she gave in. And in 1990, according to Peter, everything about the pattern of their family life changed. Right? Just fun family times kind of went out the window. And mom started getting increasingly sad because her joy was the stuff of the Lord. She loved being with her brothers and sisters. She would, she would willingly, gladly scrub the bathroom walls after Sunday service. This, she, Sunday service is over. She'd scrub the bathroom walls. And her son would say, why are you doing that, mom? She was saying, because it's for the Lord. <laughs> These were her joys. And these joys were 
taken away. And then they started bouncing around from church to church. And at each different church, people didn't know them. And she felt ashamed that her husband, though he's a Christian, wasn't there. He'd read the Bible every day at, at, the, at the store, even though, you know, he wasn't at church. And mom, bit by bit, started to deteriorate. So there's this hard thing. I'm going to share with you something really hard in the family life, the Kim family life, which is now my family's life. She had a nervous breakdown. It happened before um, I married my wife. And those were dark days. The kids were adrift. They didn't have mentors. They didn't have aunts and uncles from church. They didn't have a good pastor leading them. And they felt all this stuff. And um, so dad, you know, I, I, I thought about this. I, I kind of like think back to a young man who life had beaten him down multiple times. And he came from a poor little village and he didn't choose to go to Seoul <laughs> because in his time, Seoul is not, is not an interesting city. If you want to make it in the world, you go to the biggest, baddest city in the whole world. That's New York. And the city that had all the promises of all that is important and great in the world, he went there. And he was going to get those things. And it was going to come if he just worked to the nth degree because that's what he knew how to do. See, this is his righteousness. It's his virtues. It's, it's what makes him the man that I admire so deeply. But there inside of his virtues is a blindness and even though he knows Jesus is Lord, he chose, I'm going to make this decision. And he's stubborn. He's a stubborn man. And he and his family paid the price of that stubbornness. Brothers and sisters, this could happen to you. It is going to happen to you. I, I'm kind of a, I don't mean to be mean. I'm I, I kind of like a, I'm a person, I, I like numbers, okay? <laughs> There's a certain percentage of the people who are going to listen to this sermon. You will hear this sermon. You will hear this sermon. And when you're married, when you have children, I mean, some of you guys are like 16 years old. And when you're 26 or 36, you're going to be like, I'm not going to do this. And you'll actually follow through. I'm going to obey even when Jesus tells you to do crazy hard things, and it's going to be like, I can't do that. If I do this, if I do this, we're not going to get the house. If I do this, I won't get in the college. If I do this, you know, my career won't go to the next place. I, 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 that's, you're going to be there. You're going to get to that place. That's what dad did. If I close the store, the business is best on Sunday. It's a women's clothing store. Of course it's best on Sunday. We're going to go under. <laughs> So everything about the world and what New York City tells you is you cannot close that store that day. So when you choose, my son has to go study his SATs and not come to Bible study on Thursday night. Go to youth group Thursday night. Yeah, that's a choice. I've watched parents make this choice year in, year out. My daughter has to go to, you know, like basketball camp 
and not go on the mission trip, right? We are going to drive the kids around, do this, this, and that, and not go to Bible study. These are all choices. My father-in-law made a particularly intense choice. It's a hard choice. Inside the world, everybody understands the choice. I'm a the pastor. I'm, I don't like imposing things, and everybody feels like the pastor imposes hard, heavy things on us. Um, let me tell you something. The pastor does not impose hard, heavy things on the, on, on the, on the church. You know who imposes hard, heavy things on the church? Jesus. <laughs> Jesus does. The pastor is just the, the messenger boy. <laughs> and we just catch the flack. So we get to be the messenger boy from Jesus. But let me tell you, when Jesus gives you that message, oh, there's grace in there. There's wisdom in there. There's great and incredible things of God embedded in that big command. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna go to part two. I'm blabbing too long. <laughs> Is Jesus worthy of your trust? Is the Father worthy of your trust? I've been thinking about this. How can I try to like give you a little example to like try to pull you? You know, if I'm a bad pastor, I'll just tell you, you just gotta do this. And if you don't, you're a bad Christian. And then I just put all this super heavy pressure on your will. That's a bad pastor. You know what I have to give you? I have to give you God's promises, his grace. Like the promise is something we believe in hope, hope. Hope is something you don't, it's by definition, you don't have it. You have to like, it's like, it's like there, it's like hope can seem very, very like far away. It's like, it feels dark today, but there's like a little light over there. And that little light, I gotta go there and like have faith, like my faith stinks but the hope is over there and the hope is God's promises, his grace. Even though today it's so, are you kidding? This is the choice I have to make? I, I want this and if we don't get this, it's gonna fall apart today. But God wants this. And somehow there's supposed to be something beautiful there. So I'm gonna tell you um, an example. It's, it's, it's actually a fictional example, but it's, oh, it's not a fiction. It's not a piece of fiction. Any of you ever seen um, the movie Dreamcatcher? Dreamcatcher? It's a super successful movie. Not. <laughs> movie came out in 2003. Uh, my wife and I love this movie. It's actually based on a Stephen King novel. And I don't know if you know this. Stephen King, I don't know if he's a Christian. If he's not a Christian, boy, for a guy who's not a Christian, boy, does he know the Bible. It's crazy how much he knows the Bible. He can weave the gospel I'm, I'm pretty convinced that he knows how to weave the Bible into his stories. It's part of the reason, because the Bible has the most profound stories. So even if he's not a Christian, it's like there's like the power of the Bible. It's like coming off. That's one of the reasons why he's a bestseller. Now, Dreamcatcher. I won't go into all the story. So there are four boys. They grew up in rural Maine because like 90% of Stephen King's stories are set in rural Maine. These four boys, when they're young, they're friends, 
and they defend this guy named Douglas. Well, let, me, let me see if I get this right. Um, Douglas Cavell. He's a special needs. You know, he's kind of, you know, he's like socially awkward and he's physically clumsy and he's being bullied by these other kids and these four boys, they, they, uh, they, they defend him. And they defend Douglas Cavell and they love him and then he loves them and he becomes a special friend to these four boys and they all grow up together. These five guys, these five kids all grow up together. And um, so I won't get into all the details. It turns out Douglas Cavell is not normal. <laughs> and I'm not talking about special needs. He has like special powers. <laughs> and as you, and you know, this isn't really ruining it. Um, turns out Douglas Cavell is basically a Christ figure. He's a Christ figure. In the drama of the story of Dreamcatcher, Douglas Cavell is basically Jesus, okay? <laughs> Except he, he looks like, you know, a young man that's special needs. And what he does is he puts like special powers on all four of these young men and they all realize, like they, they have a nickname for him, they call him Duddits. That Duddits, he did this to us. He like did weird stuff to us and now we have these weird powers. And so they all have this strange fellowship because they all know that Duddits is their friend, but Douglas is sort of like, they have to follow what Dennis wants. It's really weird. It's like their weird secret. And every year they get together for this hunting trip. And one of them, they call him Jonesy. Jonesy tells this story. And this is the part that's relevant to our message today. Jonesy tells this story. Because a while back, before they go to the hunting trip, Jonesy has this experience when he's on the street. And then he gets this vision. You know, he's not... Duddits, Douglas Cavell Duddits isn't there, but he gets this vision of Duddits, and of course Duddits has power, so he knows like this is actually from Duddits. Duddits is on the other side of the street, and he basically beckons Jonesy over. Come over, come, walk toward me. He knows Duddits is special, so he walks across the street. So he walks across the street. You know what happens? He gets hit by a truck. Bang. He gets hit by a truck. And he's like flopping around there on the ground. And he goes, like, he basically almost dies. And miraculously, he recovers. He's like fully recovered. But he's, he's got this really hard thing in his heart. And he talks to his friend and he says, you know, he says, he talks to his, his closest friend who's Henry and he goes, Henry, He's like, you know why that happened? Because Duddits called me across the street. He's like, I can't believe it, but like, but he would never do harm to me. You know that, right? Because Duddits loves us. That's the way he puts it. And I, I won't go into all the details, but basically something like this happens. When he gets hit by the, the truck and then somehow he recovers, something happens inside of his brain. And there's a, he gets this power inside of his brain that can only come from injury. And then he gets this compartment in his brain that nobody else has. It's, it's crazy. <laughs> this isn't the whole story, but it's an important piece of the story. And what happens later, and I won't get, I won't get into all of you, you can just watch the movie, I won't ruin it for you. This evil satanic figure comes into the world 
who's going to murder millions of people, destroy the world. And then he meets Jonesy, and then he freaks out when he knows that Jonesy knows Duddits. Because this evil figure sees Duddits as his enemy. <laughs> and he then takes over Jonesy's body and then now controls him. But there's this one place in his mind that he can't enter. <laughs> he cannot enter this place because, because he obeyed Duddits. And Duddits did this thing to him. And it's that special one little piece of obedience that later on enables Jonesy to fight this demonic figure and help save the world. How do you like that? That's the story. Sounds like an interesting movie? It's a good movie. Okay, just uh, um, moms and dads, don't, don't watch it with your kids. There's some really scary parts in the movie. <laughs> There's like some really intense, scary parts in the movie, okay? So don't watch it with your, if your child is, say, mm, under the age of 12, they got active imagination. They will have nightmares. Don't watch it with that, okay? Okay, you're like, oh, that's a fictional story. No, it's not. In 1990, the liar of all lies came to my dad. And he lost. And um, the whole family lost. We feel it today. But there will be these times when some of you will choose to obey. It's, it's, a, it's a really strange, quiet thing. And the Lord will take you into a, a journey and like Jonesy, you will see great and glorious things. <laughs> I gotta stop. I'm gonna close my message this way. The church is a station of redeeming the world and its nations. Let me tell you, there is an evil demonic figure out there, and it's not fiction. And it's swallowing up our neighbors and maybe swallowing you up. You know what the difference between being swallowed up or not is? Trust and obedience. He's the only one that can free you from the prison of yourself and take you into something far more beautiful and powerful. You and I are ambassadors and soldiers of heaven. This Earthly, intensely worldly city is an especially crucial place for the kingdom to have an outpost. So many nations of lost people seeking their fortunes. See, the 21st century, Young Moo and Jimmy's, they don't come to New York. Well, some of them do, but they come here. And they're getting destroyed by their dreams. 
Our king is not calling you into an obedience he does not know himself. The father has a huge dream to redeem and heal all the nations of the world and has called his son to an obedience. So the son knows obedience. It's not just like he's the boss. Follow me and do what I say. He is saying, I understand the obedience. I understand the weight. I understand what it's like to go and do a crazy thing that dad called you to do, and it'll cost. The son understands that. So the greatest commission was first obeyed by Jesus. (laughs) He came not to conquer us with his might, He came to heal our prideful and wicked hearts and release us from the prison of our own selves with his humility, with the balm of his blood on the cross. And of that blood, all that would flow out is the wisdom and power of his obedience. The son's obedience. And that his obedience would wash over our distrust and our disobedience and even when we disobey and distrust there is grace awaiting to fill up the lack of our trust with the fullness of his trust that's the gospel and even when our obedience is small the rewards are big um You know, dad, he knew. He knew he screwed up. He's not from a generation that knows how to say, I'm sorry. He found broken ways to repent. And it's a grace that our whole family knows Jesus. Especially my brother-in-law, I think he really saw the pain of many of his father's mistakes and when we prayed over his body because Jesus could give us forgiveness we could give forgiveness and we could have just grace upon grace and even when my father-in-law's obedience was very very imperfect the grace of God through Jesus I just feel it is like just flowing around that bed over all his children But how much more could it have been? How much more incredible could it have been if it had been a little bit more like Jonesy? And so, brothers and sisters, let's go to the table of the Lord and let grace wash over us. Let's eat grace. And let's go into forgiveness. Let's run into obedience. And let's see what God will do. Let's pray. Father, we go to your table. Poor sons and daughters. So poor at trusting and obeying. We regularly look at the the goods of the world and the promises of our Father through Jesus are so faint but especially 
as we launch this church and obey the Great Commission? Would you let the obedience of Jesus wash over us? The trust of the Son help turn us into better and true sons and daughters of the Most High God, the Father. And help follow us, that we would be followers, we'd be disciples, and our church would have the great power of God. The incredible things that could defeat the devil and of death and sin that's constantly breaking the world and our lives all around us. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your forgiveness. And give us conviction and repentance. Not just repentance of a feeling today or of a thought today, but a lifelong repentance. A lifelong obedience. So that we would see your great things when things are going well and especially when things are going hard. The God of the cross who makes all things that are even painful and terrible, glorious, and amazing. And we follow the God of the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.